Hi everyone, welcome and welcome back to the Bodyweight Warrior podcast. I am joined today, as you've probably already been told, by Adam Meekins. Adam is a physiotherapist based here in the UK. Um, he's got an alternative view on things. I would say a very, very um, straightforward view on things on physio and rehab. And you know, seeing as myself have come through a lot of injuries, I've got a very, in, a very sort of a focus on rehabilitation. I'm quite interested in it, both from a personal journey and also from a coaching perspective. I thought it'd be a great opportunity to have him on to talk about injuries, rehabilitation, having healthy shoulders, and um, maybe some pitfalls that you might avoid in in the rehab realm. So thank you, Adam, for joining me today. No problems. Thanks for the invite. Looking forward to talking. <laughs> awesome. So yeah, if um, I, I first came across Adam on Instagram and underneath the, the sports physio and he's definitely got some some what would be I guess controversial posts in the the physio realm but for me they kind of just seem they they, they felt like common sense is, is what like I'd uh, I'd describe them as more than like controversial so um, I know you have an extensive history in rehabilitation could you maybe give a little bit of background to the people listening uh, about where you've come from where your education is and, and what you're doing currently yeah, sure. No problem. So I haven't always been a physio is the first thing I often tell people. So I entered into the world of physiotherapy late. So physio is my third career in life. Uh, don't let these youthful looks of mine fool you. I'm actually a lot older than I look. But I, I when I left school uh, 20 <coughs> years ago now, I, uh, I left and joined and went into the British Army. So I spent a few years in the army and the military. That taught me a lot about myself and about other people. Uh, I left the military and came out and uh, after a year of bumming around trying to work out what to do the rest of my life I thought I better get a grip and I went into university and I did my first degree in sports science uh, which was a degree in strength and conditioning basically so I learned the basics of exercise prescription, physiology, periodization, uh, obviously the practical elements of coaching and teaching uh, mainly Olympic lifting but general exercise as well. Uh, and then as a strength coach, I was uh, realizing that I was having people, clients of mine breaking down in injuries and I didn't know how to proceed. I didn't know what the problems were. I didn't know what was safe to carry on and what was not to carry on. And that sort of led me into an interest into injury. And then through that, that's what led me into physiotherapy. So I managed to blag my way into a physiotherapy undergraduate program in 2000 and uh, just about qualified because I'll be open and honest with you I found the physiotherapy training horrendous and uh, it's one of my uh, bugbears is is it still I doesn't think hasn't changed much since I've been a physio now 15 16 years now um, I still find physio training needs to up its game in understanding of exercise physiology and prescription because a lot of physios are coming out and uh, they're just they're poorly equipped to help uh, people with injuries using exercise. I think a lot of them are still too scared. They're not aware of what is safe to load, what isn't safe to load. So I just think, as I say, uh, I am still probably pissing off a lot of people still in the physiotherapy world because I am trying to get them to up their game and get physios to understand that we're supposed to be the movement experts we're supposed to be the you know the exercise people to go to and i find that we often we, we don't we don't meet those expectations i find a lot of physios and physiotherapy in general has a bit of a poor reputation and it, it's it's something i'm passionate about trying to improve i want physiotherapy to be a respected profession uh, to help people with injuries and problems to get back into doing what they're doing and I just find they do it very poorly so that's what I think causes a lot of controversy so that's yeah. a little bit about my background cool uh, I think it's interesting I just want to 
jump basically ahead of other questions I had planned. Um, do you think perhaps then the, some of the issue obviously maybe lies with the education, but also just the expectation of people coming in to see a physiotherapist? They expect you to do certain things uh, and fix certain things like you're you know, a little bit of a magician in a sense and magically kind of cure all of their issues. Maybe do you think the, the issue kind of lies there with, with giving people a realistic expectation of how long injuries take? Like, you know, myself, when, I, you know, I had uh, goggles, elbow and nerve damage to both to both elbows and like, I was sort of set out and I was like, oh, it's going to be, you know, four weeks, I'll be fine. And it ended up being like nine months before I got back into something decent. And, and that was like, you know, a, a huge frustration at the time. But then after going through that process with subsequent injuries that I've had, it's made me expect things a lot differently so i think maybe not everyone has that is that kind of where you'd sit on it as well yeah and no, i think it's a great point tom i think again it is just a a misconception that i think a lot of people have uh about how long things take i just think again in this day and age our society is becoming less and less patient you know with everything you know we are just wanting things done quicker sooner faster it's because now we've got everything at our fingertips you know you can press a button and get things ordered from amazon within 12 hours if you need to still don't know how they fucking do that but <laughs> it's amazing. i think the fastest ever was like 13 minutes in birmingham from like order to delivery that is mental isn't it yeah. it's like ha, ha, in this day and age now you don't have to wait for anything you know right. so i think that is very much making us as a society when it comes to being you know in a position that's awkward that's uncomfortable that is unnecessary a lot of people are you know well i shouldn't have to in this day and age put up with this it needs to be magically fixed it needs to be taken away from me and i think that that is a big issue that society has and i think we do need to do better uh, not just physios, but I think healthcare in general, in just re-educating people that, you know, although technology has changed and we can get things from Amazon quicker, our physiology is still pretty much the same as it has yeah, been yeah. always. You know, you can't rush biology. You can't rush physiology. We've got these standardized sort of time frames that we know injuries take. And, and again, yeah, a lot of people are just not willing to accept it or tolerate it, I think. I think that's the other problem, you know, that we are becoming not only less patient, we're also becoming less tolerant of things. And I think that is another thing that we've got to be better at doing as healthcare uh, professionals is is just getting patients and people in pain, in disability to just tolerate things a bit better, uh, you know, with some support, with some compassion, with some empathy. But I think, again, the expectations that patients have, you go and see a physio and they're going to take your pain away. They're going to reduce it. They're going to make it better. And most of the time, I tell my patients that I'm coming here to help you through this process. I'm here to guide you and give you assistance. But very rarely will I magically make your pain disappear within 20 or 30 minutes of coming to see me. It just doesn't work like that. But it is a common expectation. So a lot of the time, yeah, I am I am trying to challenge those beliefs in, in patients. And I think, yeah, it's just a societal problem. Yeah, do you find that, okay, it's like, I guess some people might accept that and be like, great, okay, help me on it. Or do you, do you find that some people are like, no, I'm going to go see somebody else? Yeah, no, there's the ones that will just keep searching for the quick fix. And, and, and this all comes down to that we use this term self-efficacy. Um, I, I find that the people that don't accept the advice and guidance and are looking for a quick fix tend to have lower self-efficacy. That is, they, they've, they've got less belief in their ability to get through this current situation that they're in. Uh, and one of the key signs for that is always looking for a quick fix, a quick solution, rather than looking at the long-term uh, solutions, looking at the long-term gain. 
the the very much focus is on improvement now quick fix quick fix and these are the say the people that i see going for either hot packs and cold packs all the time for a little ache or a niggle reaching for the medicines going for injections rushing into surgeries rather than just accepting that you know things take time and you've got to have that confidence that it will get better with time and it all boils down to whether you've got higher or lower self-efficacy in this situation that you're in so yeah it is something that say is a, is a problem from person to person some some have high self-efficacy you tell them this and they go yeah okay that makes sense thanks for me you know i'll crack on you know i'll come and see you as and when needed and then others as you say they'll go and find somebody else who will uh, who will try to do what they think <laughs> is needed and often they end up i think being disappointed yeah okay absolutely i mean i i personally can definitely attest that like that belief that things are going to get better um, I, I think probably the more interest I've had, the more I've had the belief that things are going to get better because you've kind of come out the other side. Yeah, it's through experience. I think, you know, once you've had an injury and, you know, you've realized, Christ, it did take longer than it's going to have uh, or that I thought. And the next time you get that same injury, you've got that expectation, you've got that understanding. So I think that is a key factor. So, yeah, I think the more injuries you have, and I've had a good few over my life as well, <laughs> I, think the, I think the higher your self-efficacy knows that, okay, stuff is going to get better, but I've just got to be patient and stick with the process, yeah. Yeah, okay, absolutely. Okay, so talking about injuries, um, as you're aware, like my sort of thing is bodyweight training, especially handstands. Um, yep. I think it's probably one of the more injury-heavy sports that I'm aware of, like, there's, there's always people complaining about aches and pains. Um, and I think there's lots of reasons for that. I mean, it's for one, it's, it's very, very tendon intensive. Um, coming back to gymnastics, you get people who train from like the age of five and they have 10 years of conditioning. And then in calisthenics and bodyweight training, you have people trying to do the same moves that have taken people 10 years, but they kind of try to do it in like six months, one year. And I think that kind of acceleration doesn't help. Do I think injuries occur more in calisthenics than yeah, anybody yeah, else? Was, uh, do, do you think that you know certain sports set themselves up more for injuries? Do you reckon it comes down to a personal level? Do you reckon it's down to somebody's training practice, or is it you know a factor of all of those things? Yeah, uh, again, it's a very good question, and I wish I had a definite answer. The simple answer I haven't. Um, when it comes to injuries in sports, it, it's a very multifactorial. Uh, effect that that will create injuries uh down to lots of different things so i mean i had a quick look at the injury prevalence in calisthenics i can never say that what did you say it? Cali calisthenics i think calisthenics yeah body weight type exercises yeah. you know gym I, I i compared it to gymnastics and other things and and there is an injury prevalence uh, statistic in gymnastics that is quite high when you compare it to other types of sports but it still isn't as high as rates of injuries in contact sports such as rugby and everything along those lines of course yeah. so you're not up you're, you're not you're not up there as the highest risk uh, type of sport <clears throat> and um all, all sports all exercise has an element of risk um it's just that some have slightly higher and, and the reasons behind why some are higher than others again some are i think modifiable factors and some are not so modifiable factors but it's never down just to, to one. I mean, I think the biggest one that I see, and you you mentioned it briefly, is is doing too much too soon, too quickly. So uh, overload and not allowing the body to adapt and to adjust to what you're asking it to do is probably you know a key factor for a lot of injuries. But it isn't just as simple as that because we do know that people can tolerate sudden quite big jumps and in increasing load. 
uh, and then there's others that can't. So there's an individual factor behind it as well. And whether that's a genetic thing, whether that's an environmental thing, whether that's a psychological factor, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not sure. Again, it is injury is a, is a big hodgepodge of unknown. They, they use the term black box <laughs> epidemiology a lot. Okay. So epi- black box epidemiology is you've got all these risk factors, things such as experience, personal beliefs, uh, strength, movement skill, uh, all these things are say as possible risk factors as to why you may or not get injured but they go inside this black box and what happens inside this black box is we're not quite sure but out every now and again pops out of this black box is somebody with an injury and and trying to piece together as to why this person got injured and the other person didn't is is very very challenging so I, I yeah injury risk is something I find that is it's, it's there in all sports but do we are we able to prevent it no i think prevention is something that i i'm not keen on using in the term of it sporting injuries can we reduce or mitigate risks yes we can okay very so i mean my my instant thought on that would be you know things like rugby contact sports that's going to be a lot of injuries i i would assume would be based on the fact that it's contacts and you've got those heavy hits that's going to be influencing injuries whereas with calisthenics i think essentially more the injuries would be down to like overuse, poor patterns, lack of strength, yeah. like, like different yep. sorts of injuries. Yeah, contact sports obviously have contact direct trauma injuries, but they also have non-contact rates of injuries as well. Okay. Football is technically a non-contact sport, and that still has quite a very high risk of injury. <laughs> yeah. um, but again, the questions around it as to why, multifactorial. Okay, interesting. <laughs> One thing I know that we have in common, I know yourself, you, you're not... You know, a, a body weight calisthenics person. I know you do a lot of body weight style training for one reason yep. or another, and and one of those things is the handstand. Um, yeah, I've been seen, trying for the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah, I've seen you doing it on Instagram. I've seen you sort of posting things on your courses, getting people doing it. Um, is it just for fun? Is there a specific reason behind doing handstands? I'd love to hear your kind of thought on it. Um, it's a bit of both really I I, I use um, closed chain exercises for upper limb and shoulder problems uh, for various different reasons so the the, the posts I put on Instagram and on my courses is just to to demonstrate some variations of closed chain exercises you know from the easy stuff to the slightly harder stuff and obviously handstands is the slightly harder stuff Can I um, just get you to briefly explain for the people who aren't aware what closed chain open chain exercises are yeah, so obviously the upper limb we tend to use uh, in an open chain fashion. So that basically means that as we're moving the limb around, only one section is connected to our body or to a fixed surface. So obviously the hand is free in space to move around. So that's classed as an open chain movement. If I was to put my hand up against a wall or onto the floor, I've now closed the chain between the hand and the body. So there's now two areas of fixation. So that's the difference between open chain and closed chain. Cool. So the so the reason you're using the hands is that like are you looking at using it to improve shoulder stability, to improve you know overhead position, anything in particular? Yeah. Yeah, there's a couple of reasons why using a closed chain exercise in the upper limb is quite beneficial. So first and foremost is for increased proprioceptive purposes. So when you close the chain, depending on which way you do it and how much force you're putting in through it, you compress the joint. And obviously the upper limb is not used to being compressed as much as the lower limbs because of uh, non-weight bearing type uh, function and statuses that they uh, do throughout the day. 
so as soon as you put the upper limb into a closed chain position, it actually increases proprioceptive information up to your central nervous system. So you tend to find for somebody that is not able to sort of feel where their shoulder is in space or they have a problem with their stability of the ball on the socket, the humeral head onto the glenoid. If you put them in a closed chain position, it tends to increase those sensations of knowing where the shoulder is. So yes, it does help improve their stability. So if you've got somebody with a, a loose shoulder, an unstable shoulder, um, those positions can be beneficial for them to gain a sort of better connection and awareness of where their shoulder is and what it's doing at time just because of the increased progress receptive information and then the other benefit I think is just to say it's a novel stimulus so again we tend to use our upper limbs a lot you know open chain and just changing the stimulus I think just allows the the body to to feel something a bit different it engages I find a lot of patients into doing things different and they're more likely to do their exercises if they're having a bit of fun it's a little bit challenging and a little bit different as well yeah, absolutely. So I guess, I mean, it's probably, you know, hand isn't maybe one of the things that you would uh, chuck somebody who's, who's got an injured shoulder into straight away. Um, no, say somebody true. was suffering from, you know, shoulder instability, where would you start them along that journey very sort of, at a simple level? Yeah, again, you know, there's two types of shoulder instability. So there'll be trauma and non-traumatic uh, causes that may, makes the shoulder start to feel unstable. So if it's a traumatic one, then we've got to be obviously mindful of the natural healing processes because we know they can do some structural damage after a dislocation under traumatic uh, circumstances. So again, we just respect those uh, processes. But I don't think there's any reason why we can't get them uh, closed chain uh, movements and exercises very early on. Obviously, the non-traumatic ones, we don't tend to have to worry too much about the structural defects as much, and we can get them going a bit sooner. But, yeah, I mean, if I was to get somebody started, you know, a nice way is just simple uh, pressing the hand against the wall in an upright position. You know, that's technically a closed chain exercise. It's got very low load going in there. They can just increase their body weight through the shoulder girdle by leaning into it a bit more. I tend to get them to move their body around the shoulder um, so they just sort of fix their hand against the wall and then they sort of lean forward, upwards, round, twist the body a bit. So they just again just challenge different areas of the shoulder, just explore the movement with a little bit of low load going through it so it's not too challenging in the early stages. The next progression from that would be naturally down onto hands and knees, so into four-point kneeling. And again, same thing, just exploring the movement, bit of weight transfer in, circular movements, shoulder tapping, going from four points to three points to two points, and just progressively taking it up from there, building them up into press positions, doing the same thing. So now they're not on their knees, but they're on their toes. So there's just more pressure going through to the upper limb. Again, just exploring the movement in lots of different ways in novel positions and then to eventually you know press ups those sort of things in plank positions uh, downward dogs all those sort of things you know you just start to push it into greater ranges with more weight more force through it as they can tolerate it until eventually yeah you start to progress them into overhead positions into loaded positions and eventually yeah handstands if possible if they want to not everybody wants to no no um so i guess a lot of this is you know about being strong and something you've mentioned a lot is, is this kind of notion of not being fragile anti-fragility and you have a saying which is you can't go wrong with getting strong um would you be able to expand on that from your perspective what does it mean to you what what could people take away from that 
Yeah, it, it's a it's a catchy saying, and it's a, it's something that I use a lot because it sticks into patients' minds. I think a lot of patients who I come to see me, they have a fear of using resisted exercises because the fear is is that it's going to make it worse. It's gonna it's gonna be you know risky if I pick up this heavy weight. It's going to cause more problems than I've currently got. Uh, and so I, I tend to use this to try and reassure patients to say that you can't actually go wrong getting strong if you're sensible and you grade your exposure gradually and steadily and you get used to it uh, gradually and steadily. And again, I, I tend to use another saying to a lot of patients that are still fearful of you know, using resistance-based exercises. I said to them that if you think getting strong is risky, try being weak. Because <laughs> being weak... Is even more risky, you know. Being weak leaves you more susceptible to injuries than being strong and lifting weights. So I try and use that to try and put a positive slant onto it. The other thing that I, I also have a saying for us is when it comes to getting strong, we're not just talking about your muscles, your ligaments, your joints. We're talking about you as a person, you know. I, I am getting you strong. You know, that's the psychological factors behind it mm -hmm. as well. So, you know, the, the exercises we're doing here are not just to challenge your physiology, your body, your muscle, your ligaments, your tendons. It's also here to challenge your psychology. It's here to, to put you in some positions that make you feel a little bit uneasy, a bit, a bit uncertain, and to show you that actually you can cope with this better than you probably thought, that you've just managed to pick up this 10 kilogram weight that you probably haven't done for a long period of time, and it hasn't broken you. It's worked you hard. It's it's given you it's given you some you know sensations of you know awkwardness and uncomfortableness. But mm -hmm. it, it, you've come through the other side, and say I think that is the other benefit of getting strong. Is it? I, I again I a lot full of sayings, but I say you know I'm, I'm not strengthening your your body. I'm strengthening you as a person a lot of the time. Yeah, I can I can definitely attest that. I think like just as a on a personal level, like you sort of. A bit younger men going to the gym, getting strong. I think what that does for people's self confidence, self belief, um, general kind of approach to themselves as a person can, can be hugely beneficial. Just in terms of, yeah, understanding that you aren't strong. And I think from a from a rehab perspective, from an injury perspective, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of snowflakes out there that say that you know you are fragile. You got to be careful of your body. Whereas in fact, your body can handle a lot of crazy stuff. It's, it's pretty strong. It's pretty tough. Um, Absolutely. And I, I think, again, we underestimate that. And we underestimate our inbuilt redundancy to tolerate sudden changes in activity. Although it's one of the biggest risk factors, you know, the amount of people that have had to do things suddenly, unexpectedly, and their body can tolerate it. You know, they, they get some soreness and discomfort afterwards, which is natural. But, you know, our, our bodies are strong, robust, and, and they are adaptable. And they are able to tolerate a lot more than I think people actually give credit for. And I, and I think the reason they don't know this is because they don't explore it. They don't, they don't challenge their bodies. And I say to people, you know, you've got this, this structure, your body, you know, use it to its, all its glorious potential. You know, go and do handstands. Go and jump high as you can. Go and run as fast as you can. Go and sit down and squat as low as you can. Try and reach up as high as you can. Explore movement. Use your body. It's there. It's a remarkable piece of equipment. Um, and you don't you don't want to go into the grave with it looking all shiny and pristine. You know, you want to use your body and, yeah. and enjoy for what it can, you know, do, which is allow you to explore this world that we live in, you know, to the fullest potential. So, uh, you know, you've got to look after it, but, you know, use it. It's not there to be, as I say, 
wrapped in cotton wool. It's not there to be used as they only on special occasions. It's there to to do all the things you want to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so I mean, if we talk about not going wrong or getting strong, maybe if we take this from um, what would be coined as a, a prehab uh, approach. So you know, I, I know. Do you not like that word? What do you think of the word prehab? Yeah. I, I think I, I saw a mate of mine called Quinn Hennock from Clinical Athlete post yeah. something a couple of days ago, and and it is it, it it's hit the nail right on the head, and it's what I think exactly. It's that prehab is a word that's been bastardized by a lot of fitness professionals and healthcare <laughs> professionals, and they're doing stupid little preemptive pissy little corrective exercises under the guise of prehab but prehab is a term that we use to get people ready for surgery you're going in for surgery okay this is the plan this is what you've got to have corrected you're coming in to get your capacity and your tolerance up as best as you can do before you go into surgery because you're going to be out of action for a while and you're going to atrophy and you're going to stiffen up and you're going to weaken off so we want to try and reduce or mitigate those effects for you coming in and having some prehab. And normally prehab is done at high capacity and high loads, as pain and injury allows you to. It's not these pissy corrective exercises that everybody uses nowadays to reduce or prevent injury. That's that's just a bastardization of prehab. So yeah, I'm not a fan of that term. Okay, fair enough. I like that. Um, I wasn't necessarily... I, I was definitely using the term correct. I wasn't necessarily talking about... Um, we we corrective exercise. I was going to say, like, is there, you know, for the shoulder in particular, in the context of doing, you know, handstands, doing, um, maybe some some more advanced sort of upper body movements. Is there any exercises that you would consider essential for people to be, you know, adding in to ensure the shoulder is, you know, not going wrong with getting strong and actually making sure that it. I, I won't use the term prehab. I'm trying to think of another word for it, but like a, a warm up. Oh, warm up. Okay, sure. We can go with that. A warm up, yeah. So, uh, is there things that I would like? So, if somebody wants to go and do some handstands in a session, is there something that I would use before they go in and start doing handstands to make sure that they are prepared and ready and warmed up? Simple answer is, yeah, they just do lower level handstands. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, do you think, like, do you think warming up is as important as people make it out to be? Do you think there's a certain level of readiness that the body has? Do you think people maybe yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th- I think, again, a lot of social media, Instagram posts have got to blame for this about, you know, getting people to foam roll out for 10 minutes before they do something. And then they've got to go through all these prehab activation drills and everything. And, and again, at the end of the day, you sometimes see some people warming up for twice as long as they do their fucking workout. And that's just <laughs> stupid. So, yeah, again, it's one of these things that's been bastardized. It's not that I, I don't advise people to progressively, you know, get their body used to what they want to do. You know, it's a sensible approach, but it doesn't have to be anything conflated or complicated. And normally, the way to warm up for anything is to do a lower intensity of the work that you're going to be doing as your main workout. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that kind of sums up to me. I actually get asked this question a lot when it comes to stretching. You know, I'll post yep. like a, a stretching exercise and they're like, do we need to warm up before this? I don't want to, don't want to injure myself. I don't want to do anything. <laughs> um, I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Do the stretch you're going to do, but just do it at a lower intensity and increase the intensity after you've done a few and then that's, that's your warm up done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that maybe this is, you know, a bit of that kind of fragile body sort of thing is feeding into this as well. Like people are, are afraid that, you know, their body isn't as strong as they think it is or they might get injured or what have you. Yeah. Um, speaking yeah. about foam rolling, um, 
about soft tissue. I personally myself have been for a big cycle with this. You know, I used to, I used to love a good foam roll. I used to a, a few years ago. You know, every night I would you know sit on a foam roller for a bit. Um, you have the one with the nobles on. I I do extra extra soft tissue release that is. Extra <laughs> um, Yeah. Needless to say, um, I don't do a huge amount of it anymore. But I would love to hear your opinion on foam rolling. Firstly, mm-hmm. is it any good? Does it still have a place? Um, and if so, what is that place? Yeah. Okay. Um, All right. Well. Uh... Yeah, I, I think it. Yeah, I think it does. Is the simple answer. I think you know. It, I just think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions about what it's actually doing. Um, it's not for everybody. It's like anything, you know. I I don't foam roll. I think it's stupid rolling around on the ground <laughs> on a cylindrical object personally, and and that's my that's my belief and my biases. I don't do it. Um, do I recommend some do it? Well, if a patient has been doing it and they enjoy doing it, I'm not. I, mean, I never tell somebody to stop doing anything. Yeah. What I'm often doing is I'm, mis- I'm I'm trying to correct their misinformation that they've got about what it's doing or the myths and let's say misconceptions around it. So the, the biggest thing with foam rolling is people think it releases adhesions, it breaks down stiffness or things that are scarred up together, and, and that's just not what it's doing. The forces that your body experiences experiences by rolling across a piece of foam tubing uh, are so low and not done for any significant amount of time that it's going to make no changes or anything significant change to any of your tissues. So you're not, you're not actually changing your tissues. Now, people feel after done 10, 15 or whatever minutes of foam rolling, they feel looser and freer afterwards, and that's great. But that's not because your body has changed. The structure hasn't changed in any shape or form. What the reason is you're feeling less stiff afterwards is this neuromodulatory effect. You stimulated your nervous system with the foam roller, and that has now changed the perception of stiffness for you. It's yeah. a short-term effect. That that's the thing that we're not quite sure. Sometimes it lasts a bit longer in others than than other people. So it's a short-term temporary reduction in sensation of stiffness or even pain. Uh, due to your nervous system now having a different input for a period of time and therefore it's changed the perception afterwards. That's all it is. But it doesn't doesn't release fascia, it doesn't break down adhesions, it doesn't make your muscles longer or it doesn't lengthen tissue. That That's just, again, misconceptions and misinformation banded around a lot on social media. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, there's uh, kind of, when, when I got more into it, it's kind of, I guess, you know, my perception was it increases a little bit your pain tolerance to... To stretch yeah, them. that's yeah, and again, I think that's a lot of most of these things. You know, if they 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 give you that little bit of discomfort as you're doing it, you're exactly right. You're you're getting that sort of nociceptive information, which encourages your nociceptive endings to be more tolerant to those stimuluses, so they start to downregulate, and that goes with stretching. A lot of people who mm-hmm. stretch regularly, um, they they can encourage and they can tolerate the stretching sensations longer and therefore that's what gives them the increasing range of movement it's not again the structure has changed it takes a hell of a long time and lots of persistence and lots of repetition to actually change your tissues by stretching mm-hmm. you can do it it's, it's, of course it is we're bioplastic our bodies are adaptable to stretching forces but it takes forever for the stu- structures to change and it has to be done regularly so most people when they get these changes after a stretch that's quick you know within a couple of minutes it's not because your tissues are changed. It's because you've just become tolerant to the stretching sensation. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, myself personally, I can touch my toes, but at the same time, I didn't 
I didn't go from having that to, to front splits in like a month or so, which is where you see these rubbish 30-day challenges. And if I did, I'd probably severely injure myself at the same time. That Absolutely. sort of dramatic range, difference in range. Um, one thing I'd like to ask you on, on a personal level, sort of related to the soft tissue thing, is trigger points. Um, and, and kind of your opinion on them. And I'm not talking about them from, again, a perception of releasing fascia or doing that, but like... Uh, potentially with you know overuse injuries or using to to help well i don't know actually maybe i just i won't bias the question maybe i'll just ask you what's your opinion on 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 trigger points and of that book by Travon simmons um the yep. body and lower boy stuff what's your opinion on that uh yeah trigger points again it's one of these terms that's used and I always ask people, what do you mean by a trigger point? And the most common explanation I get from somebody is I've got a knot in my muscle. <laughs> and, and, and I'm like, that's, that's not what I class as a trigger point. I class as a trigger point as you've got something that's sore to press on or to touch. Mm-hmm. Now, w- what that is, that is the bit that there is so much debate and discussion around. Yeah. Um, the most common belief is it is a localized area of muscle contraction. You've got this knot of muscle, you've got these fascicle um, fibers that haven't released after a contraction. So they're adversely contracted, they're stuck contracted. And the way to get these muscle f- uh, fibers to release and relax is by pressing on them. However, that hasn't been shown. That hasn't been proved. Despite, again, people still using this explanation as to what trigger points are, we just haven't found reliably these local areas of muscle contraction. That's using various different things to try and find them. You know, scanning, imaging. We can't find any change in people's sore spots from their non-sore spots. Um, There are some studies that I think they found it, but when we go back to try and reproduce it, we can't find them again. That's taking um, biomechanical sort of samples, so biological samples from these sore spots. So there's been some studies where they've tried to see if there's a difference in the biochemistry around these sore spots. And again, some have and some haven't. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, so there's been lots of different ways of looking for what these sore spots are. Is there signs of, again, a adverse contraction of a muscle? Is there some change in inflammatory processes around the tissue? And let's just say it's uncertain. So for me, when, when, when I doubt, I, I doubt. I say it's unlikely to be this because there's no conclusive evidence. So this, this definition of a muscle knot is not something I, I ascribe to or, or recommend people use. Yes. When, you talk about, when you talk about trigger points, you're talking about a, a painful area that you can find on your body by pressing on it. The question is, is what is it? And that's the bit I can't answer. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, my, my particular thing, that's kind of a, a bit that, that grinds me sort of like when somebody says, you know, this hurts right here, this must be the issue. And and often that isn't always the case. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and is, it, is it a big issue that you've got this sore spot in there and yeah. that, it, you know, is it the end of the world that you've got this tenderness in there? And I'm like, well, no, is it stopping you from doing anything? Not really. Well, then it's not a problem. Stop pressing on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> But again, I find some patients, they, they like that sensation of finding a sore spot and pushing into it. You know, these are the, what I call your pain endurers. They, they almost got this sadistic feeling. That they, they, yeah, the massive, they just want to have this sort of pain 
reproduced and they try to look for it and find it and they poke it or they get somebody else to press it. And then I get other patients that are avoidant of it. You're pain avoiders that very much just want to avoid it and take away from it. And I think it just needs a bit of balance between both of those. It doesn't want to be aggravated too much and it doesn't want to be avoided too much. Okay. Um, I don't want to dwell on trigger points too long, but um, what are your thoughts on like sort of referral points? So triggers that aren't necessarily to do with like this area hurts poking on this area, but like, you know, there's an area, there's something wrong with this area. What happens if I poke, you know, upstream, downstream of that? And it... Yeah. Again, we use that term into regional dependency. So, you know, the, the problem of where you're feeling your issues are coming from is from something else, either, you know, deficient, lacking, elsewhere going wrong. So, again, it's, it's a theory that I think, yeah, there are some, you know, common sense embraced approaches to take to that. So, you know, you can see people that have pain and discomfort in one area that's, that's a consequence of something else not doing its job properly. Um, but some people take it to the extremes, you know, some people go, you know, well, it's your big toe that's causing your left shoulder to be problematic. And I'm like, that that's just bonkers. You know, you, you could theorize and theoreticalize, you know, these chains of links of things causative of an issue, you know, to the nth degree. And I just think, let's just keep it simple. So, I, you know, when you're talking about the shoulder, the thoracic spine, restrictions and limitations in thoracic spine mobility is going to have a consequence on what you can do with your shoulder girdle. Mm-hmm. You know, will your left toe have an effect on your left shoulder girdle function? Theoretically, it's possible. You know, you could, you could, you could come up with some sort of rational explanation or semi-rational explanation that could explain that you've got a restriction in your left toe that's affecting your shoulder girdle range of movement. But is it probable, and is it something to focus on straight away? Of course not. Of course not. So you like to do the simple things first, which I think you know is a pretty good approach. For there's a lot of flaff out common, there about it yeah, it's a common sense based approach which unfortunately common sense isn't that common <laughs> so uh, say somebody has got an injury um there's often this inherent reluctance to go and pay money and see somebody and there's 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 often this sort of you know maybe i'll just google it and I, and I know for a fact that doctors and, and GPs get frustrated with this when somebody comes into them and says, like, I've Googled my symptoms and I've got X, Y, and Z. And they're like, okay, well, wait a second. Do, do, do you think that there there is, to some degree, a level of which somebody can um, assess and treat an injury themselves? Or do you think that, no, you're better off, go see somebody? Because, you know, I've got to the point now, I've been in both... I've been like the point where I was like, no, I, I'm going to figure this out myself. And then now if I got injured again, I'd just be like, no, let me go see somebody and I'll pay them because they know more than me about this. Again, with everything, there's, there's a yes and no answer to that question. So I, I do sometimes think, and I see this in my clinics, uh, patients come in too soon, too quick for things that are not a major problem. And again, I just think that's this change in society that whenever we've got a slight ache, a slight problem, it can worry the hell out of some people, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, within two days, they're like, oh my God, well, I've got to get it sorted out, I've got to get it gone. And I'm like, I do my basics and, you know, I, I check it out and I say, look, there's nothing here to be overly concerned about. This is probably just something that's going to go away in a week or so. So just keep moving. It'll be fine. So I think there are some elements where people rush too quick to go and get things checked out. Sort of that, like, it hurts when I do this. And it's like, well, stop doing that then. Absolutely, yeah. That's a Tommy Cooper joke. You're probably too young to know who Tommy <laughs> Cooper is. But anyway, 
yeah, Dr. Dr. Hertz want to do this, we'll stop doing that then. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think there's an element of that. But then, yeah, there's, there's a lot of misinformation out there. So I do think a lot of people can unfortunately get themselves when they try to self-diagnose confused and mixed up or get some wrong uh, information, which can be dangerous and harmful, worst case scenario, other times just inept and, um, and stupid and ridiculous. Uh, but that also happens when people go and see physiotherapists as well. So, <laughs> again, I, I have spent a lot of my career correcting misinformation and misdiagnoses from other healthcare professionals who they've paid good money to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they've been told that it, they, you know their problems are due to their sacroiliac joint being out of alignment or their, their thoracic spine keeps slipping out and it's got to be popped back in every week and that's what's causing their problems. And that is quite big still in this day and age of, of being used as an explanation as to why things hurt, is that things are misplaced or slipping out or you know, these other definitions they use. And there is absolutely no evidence behind this at all. Again, it's just a misrepresentation of what your body does. You cannot misalign your pelvis just by stepping off something. You can't pop your thoracic spine out just by twisting a bit too quick. So these terms are used a lot, especially by people that like to crick and clack and press things and push things and make them pop. They're usually diagnosing it and saying, well, I've just pushed that back in. And I, I spend a vast majority of my time correcting those misdiagnoses. So I think some patients, they, they go and see healthcare professionals, they pay their money, and they're not getting the best information and advice. And they could probably have got better information and advice either by not going there and probably get themselves back to square one again. So I think that is a yes and no answer to that. So how would somebody potentially discern whether or not the, the healthcare and this is a tricky question again like maybe maybe what some for you what would be some some signs that the person is potentially going down the wrong route with with rehab for somebody i think the the biggest alarm that's going to get anybody's concerning that this person is probably the healthcare professional i'm in front of is probably not the best one is if they're asking you to come in regularly for treatment for long periods of times to correct or to you know update things that they need to be doing on a regular basis a good healthcare professional will be looking to make themselves redundant and not see you as soon as they possibly can so i think my my job is as is when i see somebody for the first time is to inform them how long this is going to take and my estimate estimate I can't speak now, my estimation of how many sessions they're going to need before they get better. And there's always an exit strategy on that first appointment. When you don't get that with a healthcare professional, when somebody else is not giving you that sort of guidance and they're perhaps saying, you know, you, this is going to be a chronic problem and it's going to go on forever and you're going to need to have three sessions a week for the next 24 weeks and then we can go down to two sessions. That should start to get your alarm bells ringing. This person hasn't got your best interests at heart. What they're actually probably looking to do is say is to do it for financial beneficial reasons. So I think that is the biggest alarm bell for me is that is a healthcare professional should be giving you a good thorough assessment diagnosis, but also then a prognosis and a strategy and a plan as to when you will not need to be seeing them again. Okay, excellent. Again, kind of uh, managing expectations on the on the first on the first meeting with people. Key point. So again, just make sure that your healthcare professional tells you what the problem is, gives you some indication of how long it's going to take before it's getting better, how much it's going to likely cost you, and how many times you'll likely need to see them. 
So it varies for me. You know, I see some patients, you know, some conditions do take a long time to go. Mm. They need to see me semi-regularly to either keep motivated, check that they're going in the right direction, change of strategy with some things that haven't worked and add in some other things that did work and increase it onto the next level. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I can see some patients for a year, you know, on and off. Other times it's a one-off assessment, nothing here to worry about. Other times it's two or three reviews. It varies. Sure, I think that kind of maybe maybe touches on the, I think probably one of the most important, and you, you mentioned at the beginning about managing expectations and the emotional effect of an injury. Um, and that, that's often, you know, a hard thing. I feel like I, I, I myself have been here as well, and I, I've known a lot of people who have had an injury, and for the most part, it's probably recovered and they're all right. But then there's this hesitation and and worry that it will come back um how do you get people over that fear of of slipping back into injury does it change from person to person is there something that you recommend is it just you know can't go wrong with getting strong no it's variable based on you know the the individual in front of me but the best way to to try to convince somebody that it isn't going to come back is by exposure to the things that's worrying them that's scaring them so I find that if they're worried about a particular movement, a particular sport, a particular activity that's going to cause them to have the same issue again, I say, well, you're going to have to expose yourself to that on a graded, you know, sensible approach. You're not going to go straight in full intensity, maximal effort straight away. Yeah. It's, it's like dipping your toe in the water. So I think that's the best way to reduce a fear, expose yourself to that fear. Just slowly, gradually, intensively. But I do find, again, a lot of athletes, there's a lot of emotional attachment to things that have made them sore or given them an injury. Uh, And in the acute stages, I find a lot of the time the emotional attachment is they feel guilty about stopping. You know, they'll carry on doing something that's just aggravating and hurting rather than just taking that pragmatic approach to say, look, just temporarily back off from that. It's almost like some just have got that, that fear that if they do that, that means they're never going to go back to it. And a lot of the time, I have to give them the green light to stop. It almost takes the pressure off them. I'm going to take the ownership here. I'm going to tell you to stop because they won't do it. So I find some some athletes very much have that sort of mentality. Mm-hmm. That in the initial stage, you just like stop, back off for this, let it calm down, or we'll come back to it later. And then when you're trying to get them back into it later, then that's when the fear can start to kick in. They've got their pain gone, okay, they feel like, great, I haven't got it anymore, but I'm worried that if I go back to it, it's going to make it come back. And now now I take a different approach, and I'm saying, look, well, we calmed it down, now we've got to build it back up, and we've got to expose you back into these things. Okay, so speak, speaking of that, my last question for you is, you know, pain is obviously going to be a part of any injury and then also any uh, rehabilitation process. What level of pain would you say maybe... I think you use a scale of 1 to 10, is acceptable for a rehab post-process because there needs to be some level of discomfort when you're recovering from injury. Yeah, sometimes, it, uh, again, it's it's not a clear-cut black and white answer. It's, it, there's a lot of ambiguity about do you ask somebody to move or do a task or an exercise in pain and don't you? So it, it, I'm not just going to say yes or no. And I, cool. do, I don't very rarely use this scale of 1 to 10. I don't oh. find it useful. I know it's often used a lot, but I, I find it sometimes a bit ambiguous and uh, sometimes a bit uh, unhelpful. I guess some people have uh, different tolerances to pain absolutely. than others. Absolutely. You know, what one person's 2 out of 10 is another person's 8 out of 10. 
So uh, again, it's it's something that you know we try to classify pain by using numbers, but pain is so individual, it's so unique, and it's so multifactorial. I don't think we can just simply dumb it down to a simple number. But yeah, there are times, like you said, that we do have to ask people to to push and exercise and rehab that's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be painful. Um, but then there's also times when I don't. And again, it's it's based on my assessment as to what the problem is. You know, again, if they've just had an acute injury and there's tissue healing processes going on, I'm very rarely saying you're going to be pushing into pain straight away. You know, you're going to have a period of time where you're going to try and avoid pain temporarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's other times now that we've respected those tissue healing processes, or I don't think there's any tissue factors to be concerned about, and the pain now needs to be tolerated needs to be improved needs to be exposed to that i'm pushing people into pain and sometimes quite robustly you know and i say to them you know keep going until i can see them starting to look agitated and really uncomfortable say right that's your tolerance there you go you found out where your boundary is now you can stop so (laughs) some patients need that real robust approach to it and others say don't need any pain at all so it's it's very hard to answer in a question as to how much pain is okay It, it relates to so many different factors yeah, sure, thank you for that. Right, um, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in uh, this short chat, so thank you uh, for joining me and, and debunking some right. myths and, and explaining some interesting rehab processes. Um, where can people find out more about you if they want to listen to or find out more or learn more? What's the best way that they can go about doing that? Uh, well, I'm on most social media platforms, so I'm on Twitter the most. Uh, I tend to share most research and uh, papers on that platform. So that's uh, Adam Meekins. Um, all the sports physio is also a term that I use, so you can sort of find me on there. I'm on Facebook as well under the sports physio. I'm on Instagram as well at Adam Meekins and the sports physio there. I've also got a, a podcast that I do with my mate Greg Lehman once a month called the NAF Physio Podcast, which stands for Not Another Fucking Physio Podcast, because there's a lot of them out there, and I just <laughs> added to it. Uh, and that's the, so the main ways. Oh, and I've got my website as well, where I write my blogs, so that's the sports.physio as well, yeah. where I tend to so, just once a month write something. Yeah, some very useful, useful snippets. There's a lot of things I wanted to touch on, but I think... Um we kind of covered the main bits that I wanted to chat about anyway. So thank you again for sharing your knowledge and experience um, with everyone. So I guess that's been it for this video. Thanks for, this. Thanks for joining me. It's been a pleasure. No worries, mate. Enjoy it. Catch you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.